Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It is Tuesday, November 29th, so consumer and retail is on tap. I'm your host, Vincent Shen, and joining me via Skype is SeniorFool.com contributor Asit Sharma. How are you doing, Asit? Uh, ready to get back into the swing of things? Almost, Vince. You know, I'm, I'm ready to get back in the swing of things, but fine, I'm behind going forward towards Christmas. So, uh, yeah, yes. Yes is the answer. Okay, well, uh, for our listeners, uh, today we are diving into a topic in part of the investing world that I have actually not yet covered as host of Industry Focus, and that is with exchange uh, exchange traded funds or ETFs. So we'll be talking a little bit about some consumer and retail focused ETFs, not only as investment options or vehicles themselves, but how they can kind of serve as a source of inspiration uh, to find other high quality companies within the is- industry. So uh, you know, Asit for anyone who's not as familiar with exchange traded funds uh, you know with a 10,000 foot kind of view can you give us a, a quick description of what an ETF is sure exchange traded funds are very similar to mutual funds uh, they enable you as an investor to dive into an investment idea and someone else that is the fund manager will buy and sell stocks or other instruments in a basket uh, and allow you to uh, purchase into this investment as you would a stock. So unlike mutual funds, you can buy and sell an ETF that is exchange traded fund in the same day. And uh, they are managed instruments. So they do assess a fee each year. And we'll get into some of those details as we go along with the ETFs we're going to talk about today. So that's one thing that you do have to watch in investing in an exchange traded fund is how much you're paying for the management of that vehicle. But to sum it up, very similar to stocks, uh, so they share some characteristics of mutual funds and equities. Yeah, so you know, I think uh, on the on the fool.com website they have a breakdown of exchange traded funds, and uh, you know, they ultimately just look at it uh, in terms of what it's called. And this, you know, the exchange traded the key thing here, like a fund, but it trades like a stock. It has a ticker symbol, but at the same time, you know, it ultimately is an investment vehicle where it holds some batch of maybe. Uh, 10 or even hundreds, if not thousands, of underlying shares. And so these have actually been around since the 1990s, uh, but I think they've really grown in popularity in the past decade. I kind of did a quick search as a proxy for that uh, in terms of Google's search activity for the uh, keywords ETF or exchange traded fund. And uh, popularity on Google searches actually peaked in October of 2008, and they've uh, remained relatively consistent since then. And, uh, you know, otherwise, some. Uh, Big perks, I think, behind ETF investing, uh, as you mentioned, asset they're easy to trade straight from your standard brokerage account. Uh, they can they're an easy way to diversify your holdings. They can give you uh, exposure to a certain region or a sector, as we will discuss here. And um, you know, you whereas with the mutual fund, there might be some type of minimum investment, five hundred dollars, or to five ranges from maybe five hundred to three thousand dollars. Here, you can buy a single share of an ETF if you wanted. It might be you know for the two funds, we're looking at around fifty bucks or eighty bucks, um, and generally lower expenses too than a mutual fund, and some tax advantages uh, that you can learn more about. But Let's dive into uh, specifically the two funds that we're going to talk about. Can you explain how uh, specifically, you know, with the S and P five hundred, how it's broken down into sectors and how that can help us if we're looking specifically at consumer retail companies? Sure. So, listeners, this is your piece of trivia for today. Uh, every single stock that's in the S and P five hundred is broken down into one of eleven different sectors. 
And we are going to talk about two ETFs, uh, one in the discretionary consumer sector of the S&P 500 and the other in the consumer staples sector of the S&P 500. And what Vince and I love about this topic is that these two ETFs give you a way of viewing the consumer goods world. It's a very broad universe of stocks. It covers everything from gaming to retail uh, to travel and leisure. So if you're looking for a way to further understand this sector, these two ETFs are a great way to dive in and learn, as uh, Vince mentioned, uh, about a sector that we personally find extremely exciting. So uh, the first one, uh, consumer discretionary uh, select sector, or the ticker symbol for this ETF is XLY. Um, it's been around since December of nineteen, uh, I think nineteen ninety eight, if I have the date right here, and or nineteen eighty eight even. And uh, shares trade currently at around eighty two dollars. So again, you can see how this is um, quite accessible, I think, to even beginning investor with a smaller pool of funds. But uh, you know, it tracks about. 88 constituents in the S&P, and uh, the mean market cap is about $28 billion. If you weight that, it's closer to about $100 billion. But this has some really big companies. Top 10 holdings include uh, Amazon, Comcast, Home Depot, Walt Disney, so very big names. Um, what else can you tell us, uh, Asset, about this fund and how people can approach it? Let's zero in on this word discretionary. I know as I became more familiar with consumer good stocks, I kept hearing these two words, uh, discretionary and staples. And for a long time, didn't really clearly understand what the difference between the two is. This ETF tracks those stocks um, which try to uh, make their earnings on discretionary income. So Amazon's a great example. Uh, I had a Prime subscription, I dropped it. As soon as I did, I began to feel sorry because. Uh, to watch some of the, the content I wanted, I would have to have this pile on video service. Uh, to listen to audiobooks, I'd have to have a separate subscription to audible.com. But in both cases, that's my discretionary income. So it's non-essential income, your discretionary income, pours into stocks like Amazon, uh, Comcast, you mentioned, uh, McDonald's. And together, this basket of stocks, which we talk about, uh, tends to do very well when incomes are rising. Uh, just to give you a few facts on this particular ETF, we mentioned at the beginning of the show the expense ratios. This has an expense ratio of 0.14%. So if you're just getting into ETFs, that may sound like a, an odd number, but an ETF can have an expense ratio of uh, less than 1% all the way up to several percent. So generally, if you hear that an ETF has an expense ratio below 1%, that's pretty good. And this one being close to a tenth of a percent, uh, it's very efficient in terms of managing your money. Uh, it's not a small ETF. It's got about $10.8 in net assets. And it also pays a dividend based on the aggregate dividends it collects of about 1.5%. Um, so let's talk about valuation. If you wanted to jump in and buy this ETF, you might be curious, how does it stack up against the market as a whole? One big picture thing to understand about consumer good stocks in general is that they tend to track the broader market. So this ETF has a forward PE of close to 20, and that means that the stocks on average in this basket traded about 20 times forward one-year earnings. So it's about um, 
the same as the general market in terms of valuation. And one last thing um, is that this stock has, or this ETF has a beta of 1.0. And that means that in terms of volatility, it's right about as, as volatile as the rest of the market. We equate a volatility of 1.0 with the market. So if you're above that number, you're a more volatile uh, instrument. And if you're below, you're a less volatile instrument. Yep. Uh, that's a really great rundown, I think, of uh, some some key stats and attributes of this fund. Uh, there's another piece of information that they share in their fact sheet, which is just a breakdown of the industries that you're kind of buying into by weight. Uh, so, media is the biggest. It's about 23% of the holdings. And then, uh, beyond that, you have internet and direct marketing retail at about 20%, specialty retail about 20%, hotels, restaurants, and leisure at 13%, and it goes down from there. But uh, besides just the specific companies, you can also get a sense of Big picture, uh, we know that this is the uh, more discretionary companies or discre- uh, consumer discretionary subsector, but then the industries within that, what exactly are, are you kind of getting exposed to through this fund if you are more interested in media and e commerce, for example? And this might be something that's right up your alley. Um, moving on to the uh, second fund that we have, which is the not the XLY, it's the XLP, and this is for the uh, consumer staples that you mentioned. Uh, again, uh, it's been around since, around, uh, since 1998. And um, this one ha- is a bit smaller in terms of its holdings. It has 39 uh, constituents, and the mean market cap is quite quite a bit larger. And you'll understand that once you uh, hear the companies that make up the top 10 holdings. So, mean market cap I have here is 56 billion, and the top three holdings: Procter and Gamble, Coca-Cola, Philip Morris, and after beyond that, Altria, Walmart stores, CVS Health Corporations. So, these are very much. Uh, you know some of the biggest names I think out there within our consumer retail world, and it makes sense. It fits the name in terms of the staples being, uh, you know, regardless of what uh, the economic climate might be, uh, they are not nearly as affected. These are still uh, stores and brands that you are purchasing from uh, on a day-to-day basis. That sound about right, Asit? Yeah, what I find fascinating, Vince, about this is uh, the people who construct the indices and put stocks in these sectors have determined that, hey, cigarettes, soft drinks, as well as obviously <laughs> household goods, those are staples. You can't do without your soft drinks. They didn't put uh, Coca-Cola in the discretionary fund. They put it in the staples fund, and same with Philip Morris. But I guess that is true, and it's based on a lot of observation over the decades. Uh, I you know, I think that's a great point that you make, Vince, about the, these are household items and unlike the discretionary fund, which has the more exciting stocks, those, as you say, that deal with e-commerce, these are characteristic of defensive play in the market. So if you believe, uh, as opposed to discretionary ETFs, which will rise when discretionary income rises, when the economy is expanding, if you're pessimistic about the economy, then you might want to buy this ETF and play defense a little bit. I wanted to point out the um, total return of the two versus the S&P 500. So looking at that first ETF, the XLY, the consumer discretionary, that has uh, done over the last five years, so this is post-Great Recession, about 16.8% uh, per year on average. And that's about three percentage points above the S&P 500. Now, this is on a total return basis. The XLP, the consumer staples uh, fund, 
is has averaged about 13, uh, I'm sorry, 14 and a half percent. So it's right above one percentage point in terms of performance better than the S&P 500 over the past few years. So not quite as great performance, but if you envision uh, perhaps the economy slowing down, then those numbers might flip and this might be the more popular ETF investment. So again, going back to our theme today about how you can use these ETFs to divide the consumer goods world, this is like a very big picture um, way to break up, am I playing defense or am I playing offense? And when we talk about the staple side of things, we're playing defense. There you go. So uh, another way I wanted to look at the uh, at these funds and what uh, how investors can view them, you know, not just uh, buying into uh, you know the, the XLY or the XLP directly, but to look at their holdings and to just get some ideas for uh, maybe companies in these sectors or these subsectors that you might not be as familiar with. And that's what I wanted to dive into now with two companies uh, that we haven't spoken about uh, in a long time. I think on the uh, on this uh, CG. Uh, series for industry focus, and the first one's Monster Beverage Corporation. They're down about nine percent year to date. Uh, they're a member of the XLP, and so uh, I think recently the big news for this company has been the tr- partnership they've made with Coca-Cola. Uh, they they have made it started to make more and more of a transition to Coca-Cola's distribution system. So they've really been able to expand worldwide. Uh, they recently made it into markets like Mexico, uh, Chile, uh, Brazil, South Africa, and also uh, China. And they launched in Beijing and Shanghai. I think in the past few months. Um, so what do you think about Monster Beverage and uh, you know some of the adjustments they're making uh, as they make this international expansion? Sure. So the Coca-Cola deal was very beneficial to Monster. Uh, as you point out, it really has expanded its uh, global footprint. But at the same time, Monster is falling victim to forces that the other beverage companies in the sector are being hit by. One of those is soda taxes. And that's something that you and I have talked about on this show before, Vince. It seemed like Monster was a more fast-growing uh, entity and this is the first time these last few quarters where we've seen a bit of investor skepticism that, hey, this can hurt Monster as well. Even though it is an energy drink business, it has a lot of sugar in its product. So again, what happens if you are um, holding consumer discretionary income and a soda tax hits in your municipality, as we've seen in Berkeley and some other cities, then you might be less inclined to buy soft drinks and energy drinks. So it's sort of a headwind on the stock, which is very germane to the theme that we've been talking about today. However, uh, I do like Monster because its particular part of the beverage world, that is the energy drink business, is growing at about a 3.5% compounded annual growth rate every year. Now, that doesn't sound like a huge amount, but if you compare it to a flat or negative growth rate for soda, Uh, It's got more of an addressable market that it can tap into, and it has every potential to resume its uh, fast growth that we've seen in years past. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important to note that you know you mentioned, uh, for example, with the taxes and some of the other regulatory pressure that uh, some of the beverage companies and other companies in this space are seeing, but. Ultimately, even if that results in you know, some greater expenses as they try and and fight some of that, uh, overall this company has uh, very strong financials. Uh, they have uh, significant cash flows with an equally strong balance sheet. I think they have something like six hundred million dollars in cash and short term investments, and that's with no debt. 
and uh, they've repurchased about $2 billion of shares just in 2016. That's really helping uh, to juice their earnings per share growth. And their profit margins, I think, uh, as a result of as their expansion, their partnership with Coca-Cola becoming more efficient, their both, both their gross and net margins have managed to grow quite steadily uh, over the past year or two. Uh, so, uh, this is definitely one where I think that with that footprint growing uh, with China, and they're also going to soon be breaking into other major markets within uh, Latin America, Central Asia, the Middle East, and Africa. Uh, it's a very interesting company to watch for sure. And uh, so, for our second company uh, that I wanted to pull from, uh, this time from the XLY Fund, and this is one that we've never covered, uh, as far as I can recall, on this uh, consumer goods series for industry focus, and that's with O'Reilly Automotive. I think typically under Fool.com they might be come under the uh, industrial sector, but obviously still very much a retail-facing side to their business. Um, basically, they are uh, selling auto parts and other more common consumer um, uh, supplies like your motor oil, your antifreeze, and their business is split about 50% to what they call their do-it-yourself segment, and then 40% to their professional segment. And uh, they seem to have some uh, really nice tailwinds in the idea that you know, with cars are staying on the road longer than ever, uh, the technology has allowed them to be much more reliable. And the average age I have here from USA Today report: the average age of a vehicle car on roads in the U.S. is about 11.5 years, which is like I, th- I believe the highest in history or the oldest in history. Um, what do you think about the, uh, O'Reilly Automotive? I like it. I uh, just wanted to read out a few stats. Um, it has 47, uh, sorry, 4,700 auto parts stores in 45 states. So it's very well spread around the U.S. And there's a good chance um, our listeners have at least driven past one if you're not a customer. Uh, I like that they're growing their sales at a pretty good clip. So this past quarter, the third quarter, uh, revenue increased 7% on a year-over-year basis. And comps same store comparables increased 4%. And it's got pretty decent margins for an automotive retail chain. Uh, It has about a 23% net margin, net profit margin through the first three quarters of this year. And this is one of those instances where studying the ETF and learning about the industry uh, helps you understand the company better. So if, if I had just asked you before this podcast, which of the two companies that we've just talked about is the staple and which is the discretionary? You might have said, well, um, gee, the staple is O'Reilly Automotive and the discretionary stock um, is Monster Beverage Corporation. Uh, so Monster Beverage Corporation is the staple because remember the S&P uh, geniuses who put together the index say that we need that energy drink. And <laughs> O'Reilly Automotive is the discretionary because when your income rises, you have more in your pocket to maybe do that project yourself. You've got probably some leisure time and the inclination to go and buy that part and uh, tinker with your vehicle. Actually, as incomes decline, then this uh, potentially hurts uh, O'Reilly Automotive, but they've been a beneficiary of, again, this uh, growth that we've had post-recession. I like it very much. I think that it's a growing, a small enough footprint that there's quite a bit more for it to expand. Uh, companies added about 140 stores this year, so definitely can keep growing that base. And it's in a good sector. Again, gas prices are low. Um, the average age of cars is, as you point out, uh, getting longer. So this company, like Monster, is in a good position 
for years of, of sustainable revenue growth, uh, I think it's another buy. So something else just to, and I was just thinking about uh, what I'd seen when the companies mentioned that they're seeing a lot of, uh, there's been a growing trend in terms of people, uh, in terms of the do, do it your uh, DIY category, they call it, or people just being more willing to do that work on their car, which has benefited them. And also they have that dual exposure on the professional side, but kind of sometimes some, I think with the explosion of things like YouTube and all these online different guides and information you get online now, it does make things like repairing uh, something smaller on your car much more approachable and accessible. Uh, just a thought that I had that I think uh, in this case, you know, kind of that technology side will benefit uh, companies and sectors sometimes that you don't really expect. And that's a wonderful point, Vince. I'll just briefly say that you need two things to for the do-it-yourself project. Well, three things. Um, you need time. You often need a little bit of money, that discretionary income. And you need confidence. Yep. And technology uh, from Amazon, uh, from the content providers, but more pertinent, as you're saying, from places like YouTube, uh, makes it simple for a guy like me who's not very mechanical to do something small go to the auto parts store, uh, pick up a part and knock it in, which I probably wouldn't do if we didn't have YouTube. So it's, it's a very perceptive point. And it's one of those intangibles that helps the bottom lines of companies like uh, O'Reilly Automotive. All right. Well, thank you very much, Asit. Uh, that wraps up our discussion today for these uh, two ETFs and some companies that we pulled from their holdings. But uh, if you have any questions, you can reach out, reach out to us or anyone else on the Industry Focus crew via Twitter at MF Industry Focus. And any other questions can also go to us via email, uh, industryfocus at fool.com. People in the program may own companies discussed on the show, and the Molly Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based only on what you hear during the program. Thanks for listening and Fool on. 